Welcome to the first episode of Friday Q&A Live, or Mike Ash Rambles About Stuff. This is going to be an irregular podcast where I talk about topics similar to what I cover in my blog, but in a less formal way. I recently recorded an episode of Swift Unwrapped with Jesse and JP, and I got to rambling about some things, and they suggested that they would actually listen to a podcast that was nothing but. And I said, well, why don't I give it a try? So here I am. So this is not going to be a regular thing. I'm not going to commit to every two weeks or whatever it is. But whenever the mood strikes and I have a good topic and it's less suitable for the written form, I'm going to talk here. This does not mean the end of the blog or anything like that. So a quick intro for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I've been programming for a long time, about 30 years now, uh, almost all in the Apple world. I got started with an Apple IIgs back in the 80s, worked on the Mac for a long time. I've got a blog at MikeAsh.com where I discuss crazy low-level whatever stuff. Um, I like to build crazy things and disassemble stuff and look at how things work and pick them apart. And if you enjoy that too, I would highly recommend that you check it out. So today on Friday Q&A Live, the topic is going to be Xcode font smoothing and the crazy stuff that I did to make this happen. So those of you who follow my blog may remember an article I wrote a while ago called a plugin, an Xcode plugin for unsmoothed text. And in that I discussed my efforts to overcome a bug in Xcode where it would not display non-anti-aliased text on my non-retina screen. And this is a real bummer for me because I'm a huge fan of the Monaco 9 font, which is a little bit of an obsession for me. So the Monaco 9 font is something I've been using for ages and ages, and it just looks right to me. And a lot of people think I'm nuts, and especially since it's so small. And I always tell people my eyes are pretty good, so it works okay. Um, I think that's starting to go. I'm guessing I've got a few years left before it stops being practical. I can start to feel my lenses getting less flexible. But until then, I enjoy it. Uh, it lets me fit a lot of stuff on the screen, and it looks really, really, really good when it's displayed right, which is no anti-aliasing and one pixel for every pixel in the font. So I'd like to mention that there are two different kinds of fonts in the world. There are vector fonts, and then there are bitmap fonts. And those of you who have come into computers more recently may not even know that bitmap fonts are a thing. Uh, when I got started with computers, they were the only thing, really. Um, vector fonts were something that fancy people used for desktop publishing and stuff like that, but almost everything was bitmaps. So the idea is that when you're using a slow computer with big pixels, you don't want to go through and draw a bunch of lines to put letters on the screen, because that's slow. And so instead, you create your fonts where each letter is just a little picture. And then usually the pictures are one bit because you're not doing color. And if you are, every letter is the same color, solid color. So the, you use one bit per pixel to represent whether the pixel is being drawn as part of the letter or not, and thus a bitmap font. So all the fonts on the system were bitmap back in the day. You had different sizes, and they were all manually created, and you picked from the available sizes. And sometimes you were allowed to pick different sizes, and it would just interpolate, and it usually looked awful. So as the years went on, we got better displays, better computers. Uh, people wanted different sizes. People wanted nice things like anti-aliasing to go with their faster computers and better displays. So we ended up with vector fonts, where it describes curves and lines and things like that that make up the code instead. Those look great. Those are exactly what you want on paper. They're what you want on high-resolution displays. They're what you want for large text. 
but there are certain cases where the bitmap just is really, really nice. So in my case, I've got two displays with my Mac Pro. It's 2013 Mac Pro. I've got on my right side, I've got a Samsung 4K display in a retina mode, which looks wonderful. It's beautiful to read. Most of my stuff is on there. Uh, my web browser, my chat stuff, my mail, all that stuff goes on the uh, Samsung retina display. And then on my left, I've got a Dell display, which is a non-retina display. Both of these are 27-inch uh, displays. And the Dell is not as dense. Looks great. I love how it looks. It's crisp. You can see the pixels but that's okay. And if you have a nice small coding font, which does not do any smoothing, so just on or off, you can see the pixels, but everything is perfectly crisp. Uh, more crisp than anything I've seen on a retina display. It looks a lot like print, aside from the fact that everything is squared off. And for a coding font, that's perfect. That's what I want. So Apple has had this thing a couple of times now, where Xcode will not display my Monaco 9 on that, on that screen. Other programs tend to do fine with it, text editors and things like that. If I set them to Monaco 9, they will show me the nice pixelated, sharp version of it. But for some reason, Xcode, certain versions of Xcode will not. I suspect it's because I have the Retina display also connected to this computer. I'm guessing that if I only had the non-Retina display, or if I had two non-Retina displays, it would realize that was what I wanted. But I like my setup and I don't want to change it, so I'd rather change Xcode. So back in the article that I wrote, and the last time this happened to me, I wrote a plugin for Xcode, which loaded in and basically hacked into the uh, text rendering code and set it to use screen fonts. This is an NS layout manager method where you can tell it use screen fonts. And screen fonts are basically things that are optimized for the screen. And the name is getting a little weird these days, and Apple is actually deprecating those methods because our screens are becoming really high resolution and fonts that are suitable for the screen are the same ones that are suitable for print. But back in the day with lower resolution screens, you had screens that were more suited towards uh, screen use with big pixels, blocky pixels, and then fonts which were better suited to print with much higher resolution. So that name lives on. And screen fonts are exactly what you want on this non-retina display for display of something like Monaco 9, where you want it to look like a bitmap font. Xcode 9 came out, and the bug came back. I filed a radar in the early betas, of course, but it did not get fixed, of course. Um, I'm sure Apple has higher priorities than this. Apple did fix it before, so I'm optimistic that they will again, but in the meantime, I decided that I really needed to take matters into my own hands. Before I wrote this plug-in, that loaded into Xcode and did this workaround, and I thought I would see if I could do it again. Now, Xcode 9 has made this a little harder because plugins are no longer really a thing. So older versions of Xcode had plugins that loaded into Xcode itself. So you could write a little bundle, and Xcode would load it on startup, and then you were inside Xcode, and you could go wild and do what you felt like. But Xcode 9 discontinues that, and they have these source editor extensions instead, and extensions get loaded into a different process so that same opportunity is not there. So I sat down and thought about code injection. Code injection is how you get code into other processes, and when I started out on the Mac, this was huge. Um, we had so many different ways to do code injection. It was kind of amazing and a little scary. We had uh, the big notorious one was Ape Application Enhancer. Those of you who have been in the community for a while know that. Some of you probably shuddered. Um, 
it was made by a company called Unsanity, whose entire product line was built around injecting code into other people's apps and doing cool and crashy things with them. The, uh, the crashy part is why, why a lot of you probably shuddered. So you would write a, uh, a plugin for Ape, and Ape would handle loading it into apps, and then you could go wild. There were lots of other ways, too. There was a thing called Symbol, which used a thing called Input Managers, which were intended to allow you to write like custom keyboard things that could be used in apps, but they weren't really very restricted, and they would load in, into any Cocoa app, so you could just do what you felt like. There, were, there was Mock Inject, which would act a lot like Ape, but it was a lot less uh, refined. It was really up to the programmer to do a lot of the work, but you would point it at a process, and it would load your code. There was, um, you could even write like an Apple script extension, and then you send a specific event to a program, and it would load your extension, and then you got code into it. There were so many different ways. Apple has pretty reasonably closed these off kind of one by one over the years, and there are still ways to do it, but it gets kind of tricky and strange. And I got to thinking about it. Because it's tricky and strange, and because I don't need this to be production-worthy, it's just me why not just use the debugger? You know, the debugger is capable of injecting code. That's kind of its whole purpose in life. So I can use the debugger to get my code into Xcode and do do its thing. Uh, even this was not straightforward because um, Apple's system, system integrity protection, whatever you call it, um, got in the way, so I had to turn that off. And then loading Objective-C code with a bundle didn't work because of code signing, so I had to strip the code signing. All the, you know, odd things to do, but uh, I'm obsessed. So I finally got that to work. Uh, I was able to get code into Xcode, and so then the question came up of what to put in it. So I did a lot of manual exploration, but in order to kind of codify it all and get it working in a repeatable way, I decided to create this shell script. You can, if you feel like taking a look at it, you can find the shell script at tinyurl.com slash xcode-monaco. Uh, but I'll try not to refer to it here because who knows, you're probably uh, running or driving or flying a plane or something like that and you can't refer to it. But if you do care to look, that's where you can find it. So what the shell script does is it grabs dependencies. It actually has the Objective-C code that I use for my injection library embedded in it just so it's all nice and easy in one place. It compiles that, builds a little library that can be loaded, then it runs LLDB, attaches to Xcode, it sets up a breakpoint for where this thing can get loaded, and then asks it to load and initialize itself, and then that takes care of it. So from there, with the shell script in place, I could write nice Objective-C code to actually do the overriding and work from there. The next trick, of course, is what do you do? In the previous version of Xcode, it ended up being pretty simple. I overrode the drawRect method of the view that rendered the source code, and I had it set the layout manager to use screen fonts on every call. It was a little bit overkill, but it got the job done. It wasn't too slow. And that was it. Fixed it. In the new version of Xcode, it got trickier. Uh, they don't use Cocoa Text anymore. They rewrote the editor, as you probably know. It's rewritten in Swift. And it no longer uses Cocoa Text. It no longer uses NS Layout Manager. It does a bunch of stuff internally. And when it finally goes to lay out the text and render it, it uses Core Text. Now, as far as I could tell, Core Text does not understand screen fonts. 
I never did quite figure out how NS Layout Manager is able to understand screen fonts, but Cortex is not, because I kind of assume that NS Layout Manager ultimately uses Cortex, but anyway, that was the situation. So I had to dig a little deeper. I did a lot of reverse engineering with Hopper, looking at assembly code and things like that, digging through in the debugger, seeing how things get called. The new source editor is written in Swift, which is different for reverse engineering, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily worse. When I was doing this, I saw some people talking about the fact that it was Swift and basically saying that I was going to be doomed, but it wasn't too bad. Um, one nice advantage Swift actually has is that structs in Swift are kind of real things. So you get initializers, you get accessor methods and all of that, and those show up in the, in the disassembly. In Objective-C, if a struct gets passed around, you don't really see it. They just kind of see the individual components being used. So I dug in. There's uh, a bunch of frameworks inside Xcode, and one of them implements the editor. So I started tearing it apart. I started looking at uh, using the debugger at runtime to see which views were focused and what layers were contained within. So it turns out that the source editor view contains a bunch of layers. It actually creates one layer per line. Uh, I'm not sure if this is per line in the entire file or if it does something smart where it only creates uh, layers for the lines that are visible on screen, but it makes a core animation layer for every line. And it's a subclass of a CA layer. One thing that I could do is dig into that subclass and see how it worked and start to see if I could override the rendering. So I hit upon a prom promising thing which was that it takes these font smoothing attributes, and there's this whole struct in there. I mentioned structs before. So there's one of the parameters that gets passed to its initializer is a struct, which is those font smoothing attributes. And I was able to see exactly what was in the struct just by looking at the accessors that were generated by Swift. Nice. And they're all listed in order, so I could even figure out the layout of the struct. And the first four members of the struct were Boolean flags for things like, should we smooth this font? Basically, everything I didn't want it to do was encapsulated in these four Boolean flags. So what I do then is I wrote code in my injection library to use mock override. So this is a companion. I mentioned mock inject earlier. So mock inject gets your code into a process, and it was combined with another thing called mock override, which lets you basically patch out functions to inject your own functionality once you're in the process. And the way it works is basically it takes the code in question, it marks that memory region as writable, then it overwrites the beginning of the function with a little stub that jumps off into a different place. In that different place, it kind of redoes the initial part of the function, and it also can optionally jump off to your code. And then you return back, return control back to the original function afterwards. So there's a lot of crazy stuff going on under the hood, but the long and short of it is that in your code, you just write a little thing that says, patch this function, and anytime something calls it, I want you to call my function first. And you just give it the function you want it to call, and everything's good. So I did that for this init method. And all I do there is I take that struct and I zero out the first four bytes of it. One liner, really simple. It gets passed in by reference, so I just treat it as a pointer to a four-byte integer, zero it out, and then I just call the original. And boom, anti-aliasing was gone. This was not perfect because it was still laying stuff out as if it was uh, using anti-aliased fonts. And layout for the two things is not quite the same. So anti-aliased fonts tend to be subpixel sizes. So, you know, the letter A is maybe not necessarily eight pixels wide. It's maybe seven and a half pixels wide. And then you render the letter next to it. And if your stuff is anti-aliased, it means that it can it can reasonably be on these subpixel boundaries. So maybe you start the rendering of the next letter at coordinate 7.5, and it goes off until uh, 15, and so forth. 
looks great when anti-alias, but when you've got stuff that's supposed to be sharp exactly on pixel boundaries, this looks terrible. You, I got lots of letters squished together with no space in between them, and uh, it was just, it was no good. So progress, for sure, but I wasn't anywhere near finished. So the other thing was to figure out how to make it start doing layout the way I needed it to. I tried to find if there was a way to get Cortex to lay stuff out the way I needed, but I just could not figure it out. I tried and tried and looked through the API and tried all sorts of stuff. Never could get anywhere. So finally I fell back to plan B, which was basically make it space things out more. So the thing is, is that there's kind of two ways to have spacing errors, right? You can have too little space or too much space. And with Monaco 9, typically there's one pixel between each letter. When you have too much space, that means there's two pixels. It looks kind of ugly, but it's okay. If you have too little space, then that means there's zero pixels. The letters actually abut each other and it becomes unreadable. So too little space is a disaster. Too much space is just a minor problem. So if I could just pull the letters apart a little bit, I might create some places where there was too much space, but I'd get rid of all these places where there was too little space. So what I finally did is these layers for each line in the source editor create a cortex typesetter using CT typesetter create with attributed string. That passes in an attributed string, and then the cortex typesetter gets that string and uses it to do layout and rendering and all this other stuff. So if I overrode that with my own code, I could actually fiddle with the attributed string before it goes in and change the way that this stuff looks. So I could use mock override once again for this stuff. Override that function, take the string, I could make a mutable copy of it, manipulate it, and then pass that mutable copy into the original. And that way, every time the code tried to create a CT typesetter, it would go through my code and the stuff would get changed. So there is this attribute called KCT current attribute name, which basically lets you adjust how far apart the letters are. And I messed around with that, and I found that the value of 0.75 worked pretty well for that. It's not perfect, but it worked pretty well. I put that in my plugin, and between the two of those, turning off the anti-aliasing and spacing letters out a little bit more, the result is pretty good. There's still a lot of problems with it. This is not something I would ever want to ship, obviously. Um, it doesn't look perfect. There's really strange behavior with things like selection. For whatever reason, any text that is selected goes back to being anti-aliased, which is pretty funny. But most of the text is not selected at any given time, so it's good enough for me. It's enough to hold me over until Apple gets this fixed for real. That pretty much covers it. Uh, the result, I posted it on GitHub. It works okay. It's not great, but I'm hopeful that Apple will fix it. In the meantime, I'm back to being productive on my non-retina display with my weird personal font, and life is good. Again, if you feel like checking the thing out for yourself, that's tinyurl.com xcode monaco. That wraps it up for this time. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already for more, which will be available on an irregular basis again. And just like my blog... This will be driven by listener ideas, so if you have a topic that you'd like me to cover here or on my blog, please send it in. My email address is mike at mikeash.com. Talk to you next time.